Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. So, uh, Dave, hey, good morning. How are you, bud? Good morning. Uh, do you remember uh, uh, the, 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 the TV commercials for, that Dosakis used to do about the most interesting man in the world? Yes. I do. I am uh, pretty sure that they are autobiographical and it wasn't a man as much as it was the most interesting woman in the world. And I have found her. So I can't wait. Yes. I had been researching a topic called compassion fatigue and I found somebody who's an expert in it and who has just had the most amazing uh, life. So our guest today is Juliet Watt. She is an inspiring author, a Writers Guild Award winner. She has been nominated for a Daytime Emmy. She was a former Playboy bunny. And uh, she is a compassion fatigue advocate and an animal rights advocate, as uh, well as being a TED uh, Talk speaker. And I is the author of a book uh, available on Amazon called In Between the Magic, My Life from the Playboy Club to Beirut and beyond. It is one of the most wild reads that I've ever seen. Uh, It's truly amazing. Hi, Juliet. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I had this really grand idea that we were going to have this really nice business-related podcast, and and so I asked if you'd join the show, and then you sent me some of your materials, and then it it, it it there's layers upon layers upon layers upon layers. So let's let's <laughs> let's save the good stuff for uh, later and talk about the book later because everybody needs to go out and buy the book immediately because it's on Amazon. Yeah. But uh, I, what I what I wanted to start with is talking about what is compassion fatigue and, and and why is it relevant? And so I think from a level setting standpoint, what I've experienced in my job, and I think everybody has sort of experienced, is more than likely half the world is uh, doesn't believe what you believe, and they don't like you because you don't believe what they believe. And everybody is entering the world like yes. this, and we're all extremely guarded, and we're all extremely stressed, and as a result, we are all a little bit strung out, which means that we're a little short, we're a little angry, and we're not our best selves. Yeah, I think we're plenty angry and we're plenty short and uh, we're not our best selves because we don't feel good. Um, I say we, and I use that in the in the British royal sense of the term, I'm fine because I kind of get it. I get what's going on and I have gratitude that I don't have to spend the next 40 years doing, you know, coping with this. But it, yes, it's very sad what's happened. And I think um, I think we because the diversity started a while ago, not that long ago, without going into depth. I think we had a change of monarchy here, and all of a sudden, life changed. And before that, it was slightly, I think 9-11 was actually a tipping point, really, in my opinion. But yes, everybody is, is angry because, and they don't know, here's the deal, they don't know why they're angry. And I that I find that quite fascinating. And they don't know why nothing is enough, you know. And I tell everybody, listen, you know, I'm taking the Ricky Gervais point on this. You're going to die, and it doesn't matter. Just you know, have fun today because tomorrow it might all be over. We are all going to die, 
And people get really upset with that. They go, why do you talk about death? It's a terrible thing. It's, it's not a terrible thing. It's going to happen, guys. And um, let's have fun. So let's, uh, I, I told my wife, uh, hey, I was going to meet this expert on com- compassion fatigue. And yeah. my wife is a, uh, a school counselor, high school counselor. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, I know all about that. And then she proceeded to tell me all about it. So I know all about it, but because uh, my wife told me so. And I, and I had a, uh, there was a quiz. But um, for our, our listeners, can you talk a little bit about what exactly is compassion fatigue? It's a real thing and it's a real, it's a real issue for a lot of people. It's um, an insidious syndrome that creeps up on you. The basic definition of it is it is you have lost yourself in who you've had to become or who you've chosen to become for everybody else. You have gone. Your identity, your everything about you, you've lost yourself. And it usually happens when uh, you're looking after a loved one that's perhaps elderly, that's perhaps ill, terminally ill, Alzheimer's, dementia, or you have a child that's physically challenged, or your school teacher, or a nurse, or an EMT, or everybody who is in the business of giving care every day. That's that's what they do. And, and we as humans are not built to tolerate that kind of stress at all. Nurses learn it, nurses choose it, but nevertheless, like during COVID, that was that was too much. You, you, it was like you dumped everything on top of these poor folk and they couldn't cope. There was a lot of suicides. There was a lot of alcohol and drug abuse because they're trying to numb the pain of the misery of the life that you suddenly find yourself in. When it comes to being a non-professional, then it's even worse. I mean, there you are, for instance, at home and you have an elderly parent or you have someone who's sick at home, right? And you're having to administer drugs. You're having to give them their medication. You're not a doctor. You're putting, you know, you may have to give something by needle. But you're not, then the stress of what if I do it wrong? You, you, you have sacrificed who you are. Your dreams, your hopes, your job, everything becomes secondary to the person you're looking after. Or in my case, my mother was perfectly healthy. There was absolutely nothing wrong with her. But she had attached herself to me like a leech. And I was her life. Everything about me was my mother's life. I didn't have my own life. Thus, I didn't have my own identity. Thus, when she died, I went into a chronic PTSD situation that I had to have immediate therapy for and and help because I was on the way down the black hole, didn't know why, because I'm a pretty cheery, chipper person, and that all went away. So my mother had drained me, and I'd spent all those years being nothing. And that's what happens. Compassion fatigue is basically trauma. You are traumatized, and, and it is really that, if that makes sense to you guys. Absolutely. And it's not just a, a physical. It, it, it can, it's like you talked about with your mother. It's, a, it's, it's mentally caretaking with people, too. Yes. My mother was a narcissist, and everything had to be done for her, with her. Everything that was adverse was done to her by mean people. Everybody else was to blame. She was faultless. And, and you, with narcissism, it's, it's, it's another devious thing that usually happens. It's in here somewhere because, you know, we're not, we, we're not taught how to take care of somebody. 
an, a parent or someone older than you. That's not, that's not what we're here for. I didn't choose my parent. I didn't choose to take care of her. But the narcissism that she had was what's called covert narcissism. And that is when it's the victimization. Look, you have to look after me. If you go out and I don't know where you are, well, then I'm, something might happen. To, and it goes on and on and on. You know what I'm saying, right? Where, where she says, what, what, what do you want for dinner? And she, she, you know, she knows exactly what she wants for dinner, but she's not going to tell you because you're sure. Oh, you're damn sure. right. And my mother, just a quick funny story. My mother used to have this terrible habit of telling me that she was going to commit suicide because she was in England and I was in America. I'd done my best to kind of put some distance here. Forget about it. There's a telephone. You're dead. You have the phone, you know. <laughs> and, and she would constantly tell me I'm going to commit suicide. And she said, I'm going to put my head in the gas oven. Well, then in England, they did a very smart thing. And I don't remember exactly the time, maybe in the 80s or, yeah, it was in the 80s. <laughs> They made the gas in the gas stoves non-toxic. And so I said, well, mom, there's the gas stove out. You better kind of think of something else because that's not going to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to. I had to make it funny. I mean, really, you know. Well, what are some of the, what, what are the, some of the symptoms that people get when they, they can recognize of having this, the, the sort of fatigue and then that losing themselves? Yes. Fatigue chronic fatigue, a lack of caring about yourself. Hence, you don't care how you look. Your weight usually goes up or down. Start drinking a bit too much, taking that odd, you know, sleeping medication a bit too much. You start distancing yourself from other people. You isolate. And that's a really, really very prominent thing that isn't recognized by anybody else, but you isolate. You don't want to go out. People say, well, you want to come out for a drink? We'll come out for a drink. No, I'm good. Thank you. I've got to look after mom. I've got to look after dot, dot, dot. Then that which is killing you becomes the excuse for you continuing to sink further into the compassion fatigue vortex. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And you completely isolate. You don't care what you're wearing. And you disappear. And I, I've had, because I, I do a lot of coaching, and I've had a lot of clients say to me, you know, I, I don't know who I am. And I go, well, who were you? Because you're that person. Who were you when you were 14? Oh, I was da-da-da-da. And they go on about all these different things and what they wanted to be. And I said, well, how about we start from there? You know, this was done basically to you. Because, you know, we have this sense of duty, don't we? We have to, I mean, if somebody needs your help, well, we have to go and help, even if it's detrimental to ourselves. No one says no. No one knows how to say no. I do. I have no problem with that. Yeah, you know? I, I find in my life, and I've said this, I think I probably even said this to Dave at one point, is that I, I have four main roles, husband, father, son, and employee. And at any, any given time, I'm doing one of those badly. You're not doing it badly. It's too much for you. Yeah. It's too much. That's, what's, that's what the problem is. You've taken on too much as have everybody else. And I'm the, I don't do that anymore. I used to, and I know exactly. Yes, you are titled all those things, but you come first. You yourself come above all of them. And isn't that shocking? You know what I mean? When I said that, when I said that in the tech talk, 3,000 people went silent. Your children come second. Oh, my God. It was as if I said, go home and kill them all. <laughs> but you do. 
right. do come first because what use are you if you're depressed, if you're drinking, if you're you're unhealthy? I mean, what use are you to anybody? You've got to put yourself first and they all come after you. And if they need you to do something that is adverse to you or is going to really, you don't want to do it, don't do it. Well, that checks out in real life too, Juliet, because you know, even like when you're getting on a plane, they say to, you know, if, if the oxygen mask drops down, you had to have to affix yours before you take care of your family. That's a great example, Dave. Brilliant, brilliant example. So as, as we look at this for compassion fatigue, and again, our audience is, is generally business folks, how do you handle folks? Like, can you spot compassion fatigue in your team or in, in people that you know? And how do you recommend that we go about either helping others or raising our hands ourselves if we know of compassion fatigue in the workplace? Well, oh, those are two very good questions. First of all, we have to care. We have to right. care about our coworkers. We have to pay attention. You know, is so-and-so who's always been kind of chatty and pretty vibrant, are they getting quiet? Are they, are they getting, staying at work too long? Are they staying late consistently? Do they look like they're maybe not taking care of themselves so well? Is, you know, when you ask them how they are and they tell you they're all right, you can really feel it. I mean, we're very instinctive. We've almost lost that. But we're, we're animals, let's face it. And they're instinct. You can feel if you're a sensitive, empathic person. You can feel in another human if, if something's off. And take them for a cup of tea. Take them for a drink. Say, listen, you're not feeling like you normally do. Want to have a chat? And you'll be surprised just that one act of kindness, which is another thing that's missing, okay? An act of kindness. Keep an eye on your fellow workers and just pay attention. Get out of yourself. You know, give. Go and, and, and if you do feel that strain of work and if you do feel that you're getting overloaded, go and do something where you're giving to somebody else, which sounds go volunteer at an animal shelter at a, anywhere, go do something for somebody else. Go do a soup kitchen deal, right? Absolutely, yeah. But you have to get out of yourself. You have to get out of yourself and, and pay attention to what's going on around you. And, and that's how you care for your fellow worker. I believe that's what I would do. I go, huh, so-and-so doesn't look right today. I wonder. And they'll vehemently deny it, of course. But then if you care and you're kind, you know, you'll find somebody suddenly burst into tears and all of a sudden there you have it, you know, I'm making it okay. To open up yeah. to other people. People don't want to go up and go, listen, can we chat? Um, they don't do that anymore. They did years ago, but they don't do that anymore because no one's supposed to see anybody else in pain because, or suffering because they may lose their job. The boss may think, oh, they're not competent because they're having troubles. You know what I'm saying? That's Teachers, to, 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 to talk about teachers for a minute. Oh, my, yeah. I interviewed, well, I, I interviewed a, quite a bunch of teachers and asked them if I could possibly understand why they had compassion fatigue. And they said, nope, we're not telling you. Because if we tell you we have it, we will be fired. Oh, my. We will be considered inept at our job. Same with nurses. I had one nurse tell me really on the QT and only because she was my friend. 
that she dealt with 14 drug addicts an hour and seven days a week. She's in Newark, New Jersey. And she said, I can't tell you that on the record. I'll be fired. And teachers were my real eye opener. They refused to speak. Yeah. Teaching is, is no longer, it is no longer teaching. It's, it's customer service. So in, in my job, I, I'm head of sales at Busy Web. So my job is to sell, uh, 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 help fix a problem. So, a, a, you know, Juliet, we need to build you a new website. Here are the reasons why. Let's talk one-on-one. What we're asking teachers is essentially to do my job, but not do it one-on-one, but do it with 30 people, all of whom have people behind them who will then tell you how you're not understanding how their particular their one particular individual needs aren't being met and how bad you are at your job because you haven't helped them achieve their dreams even though the individual person hasn't done any of the work or actually done any sort of hasn't engaged with you in any sort of way exactly exactly my mother my mother came to my school one time one time and that was only because she was summoned by the principal and all he wanted to do was tell her how useless I was. Um, in math particular, there was no hope for me uh, in the real world. I could never, never hold down a job. I was useless. I was too noisy. I was too dramatic. I was too this, too this, too this. And uh, my mother said, well, she's autistic. And my, this was one of those times, you know, as a lot of narcissists do, suddenly they'll show this amazing side to themselves. And she said to the principal, she said, well, my child is autistic. So to hell with you and walked out. That's the only time my mother ever had anything to do with my education. She never came to the school. I walked to school. I walked home alone. I mean, I, I watched these parents going at school as much as their damn kids interfering. And that didn't happen when, when I was a kid. You went to school and that was, you were going to school. Parents didn't go to school. One of the things that I think a, a lot of times if you're in a service-based business, you, you, you get is, uh, you get clients, you, you, everybody wants to have a relationship-based business. I mean, you see this all the time. I read websites all the time. People say, oh, you know, our, the, a difference maker for us is our relationships. Right. And I think that's certainly true at BusyWeb too. We, you know, we, who we are as people, it matters. And so as a result of that, I think, you know, we come to an agreement, we say, okay, here's the work we're going to do for you. And then we're going to keep doing this every month. And then, Sometimes people get what I, I call a case of the can't you just, well, can't you just do this? Can't you just do that? Can't you just, it's, it's, it's so simple. Can't, can't, can't you just right. do that? And that's corporate narcissism, right? Yeah. It's, yes. It's, it's, oh, it's, yes, it is. Yes. It's a microaggression of, I want, I'm wanting, even though we have a clearly defined relationship, I want a little bit more. Oh, give me a little bit more. I, I don't want to pay for it. I want you to give it to me. That's right. And <clears throat> yes, yes. These people that work 14 hours a day by choice, I don't get it. They're, they're, the, those remaining uh, however many hours after eight, they don't get paid for. Why? Well, I've got to get my work done. Why? <laughs> get it done when you get it done. And well, I'll get fired if not. And they're usually right. And that's a, that's a tragedy. What's happened? You, you mentioned you're an expert at saying no to people, which I think is, you know, clear after 20 minutes of recording. Uh, what what are some ways in which people can politely take back their own uh, identity while also creating a boundary? 
Well, really think, yes. Um, it, it, of, course, it, of course, it depends on the scenario. Um, uh, in the work environment, I think saying no done diplomatically is a matter of relationship. So as Dave said, try and establish a relationship with your boss whereupon you go, listen, I'm one human being. I love my job. I really love what I'm doing. I can do my job much better if I don't stretch myself so thin, I'm so tired that I'm a cranky mess. Is there a way we can work together so that that doesn't happen? I can't do 14-hour days, but I can't be afraid of my job because I can't do 14 hours a day. Now, if you have a boss that doesn't want anything to do with you, doesn't want to have that conversation, eh, maybe you're in the wrong job. Just a thought. At home, if you have a situation at home where you are worn ragged, you've gone to work all day, you've come home, you've had to cook dinner, you've had to look after the kids, you've got husband coming in expecting this, that, and the other, and you are one big rag, you have got to say there is going to be one day this week where you make your own dinner, you take care of yourselves, I'm going out with my friends. And maintain your friendships with your friends, even if it's by phone until you can actually get to see them. Take yourself away and say to them, no, this is what I need. I need this to be able to do my job here at home and take care of you guys. No, I am not going to do this seven days a week. So what are they all going to do? Pack up and move? Doubt it. <laughs> I, I doubt you're going to get fired from home. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> No, take, take, put yourself first before everybody and not in a mean way. You know, I mean, if, if mom's choking and aspirating, well, of course you're going to go help. You're going to go, no, it's my, actually my day off. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be at the movies. You know what I mean? Within reason. But, but you have to put yourself first. It's imperative. Otherwise, you go into burnout. And burnout is bad. That's when you drink, take drugs, and the most important thing of all, you start to not care. You don't care about the person you're looking after. Ah, I forgot their drugs. Who gives a shit? You know what I'm saying? I don't care anymore. I'm done. I think this begs an interesting question. What's the difference between burnout and uh, compassion fatigue? Is it mental? Burnout is the result of compassion fatigue going on too long. It's when you don't care, and, and that's when you'll start to feel it. When you feel, you started not, you definitely not cared about yourself for a long time. But when you don't care about whatever it is, your job, when you don't care about doing a good job anymore, you're just looking at the clock. When you don't care about looking after that person at home, be it your child, your parent, your whomever, or nobody in any state of distress, just home. You've gone to work eight hours. You've come home now. You've got to do the dinner. You've got to maybe go get the kids. I mean, it's, I see these poor women that used to look fabulous, that look like a wreck because it's all about the children. I mean, and, and don't get me started on that topic. I mean, children have way too much power today. I'm sorry. I just think they run the house. And my God. I agree. I live with this little thing that he wants food daily clothes all the time and oh god it's i'd have no teeth darling i'd have no teeth if i had spoken to my mother even a tenth of the way i hear kids speak to their mother today when my mother said something and if i said no i got clipped on the ear i never said no i never said why ever yeah <laughs> i mean but you know we're in a different age so we have to deal right. with today and how to cope with today 
And I think that that that's such a fascinating problem is that nobody really knows how to clearly say no because they this fear, and it's only fear. That's the only thing that stops them saying no is they're scared. You know, when people say to you, "Well, I'm scared of hurting another person's feelings." Bullhickey. It's not that they're scared of hurting another people's feelings. They're scared that if what they say upsets the other person, the other person may not like them anymore. That's what they don't want. They don't want to feel bad. Does that and it make costs sense? them likes and it costs them thumbs up on, on the socials and things like that. Because the, 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 the flip side of this is people are more than likely to torture you online if it's anonymous. Mm-hmm. I had a, I, I had a, a interaction with a, a, a colleague in a different city who had a very nice, he had a, a, written a very nice essay about something that he experienced. And I, I respectfully disagreed and I wrote a couple of points that I thought were constructive and I, but still said, Hey, you have a lot of validity here. And you know, here's what I think is differently. And then this guy, the guy that I don't even know came over the top and said, it, it, it was the most fascinating thing. He said, I'm not picking on you personally, but, and then he listed, I think three things that I had to look up. Now, isn't that interesting? I'm not, I'm not making this personal, but I am because I'm talking to you about you. Right. And that's how that, that's, that's, that's a sort of a passive aggressive defense system. So like, I'm about to tell you some really things that will really upset you, but I'm not actually telling you I'm saying them, but they're not to you, but I'm hoping to God you recognize them as what I'm saying you have. Yeah. yeah. And, and so my response, I, I just kind of let it go. Cause I thought it was funny cause I had to look up all the words that he was using to describe me. I, I saw that interaction. It was it was very interesting, Trigby, and I think you handled it great. But Juliet, I think for your history is one of the things that really I, I'm I'm assuming has helped you to create this body of work around compassion fatigue. But I don't want to undersell how absolutely intensely fascinating your life has been, and I'm sure that's part of where you picked up the the options or the tools or the ways to do that so you know writer for abc television on a soap opera you know daytime emmy nomination you know flight flight um airplane airline pilot master flight instructor worked worked in beirut playboy bunny you know all, all these things i read in the book you were engaged to cat stevens for a while what what were the inflection points in your life that really or you know maybe a couple that that helped you spark this and that have wound up being the the way that you found your path forward i actually think i have my mother to thank because you mm. know, when you're left with i have my mother to thank and my dad because i have his genes thank the good lord but i have this and i always have had this innate sense of, of survival i know how to survive and i don't complain and i don't whinge at all so I have a mother that's supposed to be a mother that isn't a mother. So that came to me pretty quick, that I was kind of sort of on my own. And, and that's why I left school at 15, forged my birth certificate to go and work at the Playboy Club, because if I hadn't, we'd be on the streets. Now, this wow. is back in the 60s, guys, when debtor's prison in England was still very much enforced. And so mother would have gone to prison. Um, and we would have been homeless. And being homeless in England in the 60s, I got to tell you, was pretty rough. That wasn't going to happen. So I thought, and I started plotting, and I saw the advertisement, boom, I went in. My mother actually being, every now and again, brilliant, altered my birth certificate 
to really, I was two years older than I indeed was. So I was 15 when I went to Playboy Travel and I should have been 17 because of there was alcohol there and being in cars and casinos and yada. So there, that began it. And there was a point during when I was training to be a casino bunny where uh, my math, as we, as we know by being told I was useless, I really was useless because I didn't care. I didn't care about math. What a pointless subject. Um, I had to do math to learn how to be a casino dealer and I couldn't. And this one gentleman who uh, changed my life, he showed me how to read pictures and the numbers on the, on the, on the roulette table rather than count oh. and changed my life. One human, I never saw him again after I worked there, but just, I thought, well, I can do this. I can actually do this. And, and it just fueled that I can do anything if I have to, or even if I don't have to. And so from then on, Dave, what happened was this, this incredible instinct of survival and I can do anything. I am capable and humans are, we are capable of extraordinary. And that's, that's why my life, because it went the way it did. And honestly, I didn't choose for it to go that way. I really, really, I went to Beirut to have fun, not be in a war. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of came along. It was like, oh, darn, kind of. But uh, yes, I think it's, it's when you have no parenting, when you have no guidelines, you have nothing. And you either do one of two things. You become a victim and end up on the streets, or you did what I did and go to hell with it. I am going to battle through all of this. And uh, one thing after another, you know, the Liège situation, uh, that was, hell no, he's not getting away with this. I'm going to go find his ass, and I am going to bring him to justice, which I did, and he went to prison for 15 years. When I got abducted by the Arabs, to be taken away to parts unknown because back in the early 70s, uh, Abu Dhabi and Qatar and all of these places were dust with tents. You disappeared. You young English girls would disappear. So I got myself out of that because I was tricked to go there by a friend. And, um, you know, I may have killed the guy. I honestly, truthfully don't know. But <laughs> Again, there I am stuck in this hotel in Switzerland and I absolutely know why I'm there. And I'm like, damned if I'm going to, this is going to happen. I got 24 hours. Think. And so rather than go, oh God, this has happened to me. I, I was about to be whisked away forever. So what do you do? Get whisked away forever and become a victim and live a life of absolute horror and misery or do something, you know? And, and I think... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just the way I think, the way I feel, even till today. I decided I would do a TED Talk. And everybody said, what do you want to do a TED Talk about? Playboy? I said, no. I found this topic. And I said, I'm going to do it in six months. And I did. And everybody goes, oh, you're so brilliant. And that, bullshit. I'm not brilliant. That's the whole thing. You just decide. And it's the same thing with your clients, you know, your, your listeners in, in their job. If you want to be promoted, if you want to end up one day a CEO, you can. Just do it. Make a plan. Make a path. Make a, a real direction for yourself and just follow it and do it. And don't. Yeah, sorry. I, I want to talk about the book because I, I think the book is extraordinary. It's called In, In Between the Magic and it's available on Amazon. You can buy it. It's been out for a couple of months now. Um, Words just can't. I, words are. I, I'm. Who am 
I really don't know how to begin. So let's maybe try this. Uh, let, let's maybe try doing this a little bit of a lightning round. So tell me, uh, tell me, uh, I, I'm going to list off what I think is just amazing life things and tell me whether or not this, this is happening. Uh, you were a, a, a stunt writer. Yes. Wrote for a soap opera. Yes. Are a pilot. Yes. You once, uh, you you once were on stage the same night as Jay Leno and David Letterman. No, uh, not exactly. I was working. Um, I wasn't working. I was well. I was working, but for no money. Um, at the Improvise Improv Club in Los Angeles, and this was in nineteen seventy six. And I would be, my slot to go on and sing was seven o'clock. Uh, Jay's slot was nine o'clock. Robin Williams, his slot was another time. David Letterman, we all sat at the bar waiting for our slots to go on. And in those days, maybe some of your older listeners will remember people like Don Rickles and Tom Dreesden. They were the guys who were the headliners. And the whole deal was to get on Johnny Carson. But they, they, you know, Dave and, and Jay Leno and all those guys who don't know me today, but but they were skinny, starving comedians. And I love them dearly because they have the hardest job in the world. I was a singer. Well, there was no chance I was going on Johnny, but but the Johnny Scouts were there every night. The improv was an extraordinary place. Mr. Bird Friedman, God bless him. Yeah, just he ran the best, the best. So that's sort of on stage, but not with them, sitting at the bar, actually, <laughs> where I was. Chapter 8 is called Helter Skelter. Did you did you connect with the Manson family at a point in your life? No. Oh, good. Did you read the I haven't gotten that far yet. I've been jumping around because the, the, <laughs> the, the table of contents, Dave, let me see if I can entice you to buy a copy of her book. Got to get the book out, haven't I? Just... There it is. Let, yes. let me know. Let, chapter 8 is Helter Skelter. Uh, chapter 12 is Behind the Iron Curtain. Chapter 14 oh is 1969 Cabaret in Cairo. Chapter 18, Gun Running and Spiders. Gun Running and Spiders. Okay. Ch chapter 26, La Vigilante, which I'm assuming is a French cat burglar of some kind. No, La Vigilante is the situation in Belgium, in Liège, Belgium, where I was raped badly and I found the guy. I walked the streets for two weeks. With my friend, the bartender, we found the guy. He was a pimp. Brought him to justice, which was difficult because it was Belgium and it's a different judicial system that I did. And um, I managed to represent myself in court in French, which was kind of a miracle. And he got 15 years. And when the, 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 that night we were finished, with, I was supposed to go home on the next day on the train. Nobody knew I was there. I, I'd lied to everybody in London. I was too embarrassed to tell anybody. Um, my friend Michelle, the bartender, came to the front door to pick me up, to take me to the airport, and he held up the newspaper, and it said La Vigilante, and it was a whole article about me, how I had literally you know, uh, been the spokesperson for all the artists the strippers, the the singers, the nightclub workers, everybody in Liège who had no voice, who they were hurt on repeated and they had nowhere to go. The police wouldn't really listen to them. And I had sort of done that for them. And that's why that's called La Vigilante, because you know what? I left that damn newspaper behind. Why? Because I didn't want my mother to see it. That's how bad it was. I should have it here right now hanging on my wall, and I don't, and I could kick myself. Oh. 
Yeah. So deep into the pool stuff, um, let, keep, keep going on the, just on the chapter list. Chapter 34 is Yusuf Islam. It, it, chapter 38, meet the white wizard, which like, I don't even know what that means, but I want to, I want to, here is $20 and let, send me the card. <laughs> uh, well, the white wizard is actually, it's, um, <laughs> it's my version of cocaine. It's what I call cocaine. That was, um, not me. That was uh, my time in Los Angeles when my darling roommate, Sandra, uh, would, uh, we would be up at the Playboy Mansion, Hefner's Playboy Mansion every day. And uh, as, I, as I was telling you guys earlier, you know, I saw nothing. I, I absolutely saw nothing, probably because I was vaguely hostile, you know, rambunctious and... Uh, right. Well, so, something tells me you, you don't have victim stamped on your forehead. Really you have, don't. I'm no, about to make my way. Yeah, and yeah. I have renegades stamped on me, which people like Carly <laughs> and Hefner, they, they don't want to mess with that. They just don't. So I used to have a good time. I would chat with everybody, make some really good friends. And, um, you know, the celebrities that were up there that were nice, like Robert Culp and, and Peter Lawford and some of these extraordinary fellows, we became great friends. I never went near Cosby because he hated me, as did the others. But there was one evening in particular that always stands out in my memory, which is what that chapter is written around. I, uh, everybody would stay late and that's when the shenanigans would go on and I would go home. And one evening I was walking through the uh, hall, the big, you know, hallway to the front door. And I looked to my left to the dining room and I saw Jim Belushi with his head in a plate of cocaine. And he was just hanging over it, literally hanging over the plate. And I don't know, something touched me because I just felt this incredible urge that maybe I could help. And I went in and I sat beside him and I said, Mr. Belushi. And he said, Jim. And, and he just stared and he was just scooping this stuff into his nose and mouth. And it was a, I mean, it was a plate. And I sat there and I knew there was nothing I could do. And I thought, should I call somebody? Who am I going to call? What am I going to say? Uh, Jim Belushi's got his head in it. No, that's not going to work. And I watched this poor man. Well, to be, and, to be clear, clear, I'm I'm pretty sure you're talking about John Belushi because Jim Belushi's running for running for Senate. Uh, oh no! no. <laughs> Just probably make clear that we're talking about. Oh, there's a headline that we want. Oh, we're, talking, we're talking about the actor John yeah, Belushi. John, John okay, Belushi. Yeah. All right, Jim Belushi. Yeah, she. Yeah, no, we're not. I love it. Yeah. Sorry, yes. With apologies to the campaign. Yes, indeed. Did I say Jim? Did I really? Say you did. Jim? Yeah. Because he's got a brother called Jim. That's yes, probably, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, yes, and, and, and so I got up and, and went home. And I'll never forget that night. And then, bless his heart, when he died, a short time after, it just broke my heart. Because I still thought to myself, what could I have done? Nothing. I could have done nothing. And because um, cocaine in those days was ridiculous. It was everywhere. There were bowls of it all over the place, you know. And it's nasty stuff. Nasty. Well, I think that circles back to the original topic of because uh, uh, I think that's a question that a lot of people have is 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 what do I do? Why can't I get these people to do what I want? And I think ultimately, in reading your extraordinary book and learning from you, is that you you can't. And that's the fundamental life lesson: is the only person you really are in control of is yourself. Right. Yes. You need to I take mean, care of yourself. Yes, you have to. Like when I was in Beirut, I did go there for, to have a good time. I went there and I, I was working as a singer and it was all lovely and there was lots of English girls there. This would be 1971, two, and uh, we were having a grand old time. And I remember clearly, I mean, 
American tourists would come there a lot. And all of a sudden, overnight, everything changed because I looked out of my window one morning and uh, and I saw these Israeli airplanes about 200 feet off the water because I lived by the water, by the ocean. And I thought, well, I know that flag and that really shouldn't be here. I mean, there was a lot of Palestinians living in Lebanon, in Beirut, in ghettos, which is a whole, you'll read. In the book, I, I do my very best to explain the conflict that happened back there in 72 between Israel, Palestine. It was nasty because originally when Israel took over the country, all the Palestinians became refugees and a lot of them came to live in Beirut. And there was, so you can imagine a lot of very angry people that were kind of good friends with the Russians and got lots of machine guns. And it was, it was a brew of trouble that the Lebanese government just put a lid on. They didn't want to see it. So they put them in ghettos and none of us knew Well, we knew they were there, but we didn't want to go near them because they were nasty people. And uh, the lid blew off one day because what they did was Yasser Arafat decided he was lobbing uh, grenades and bombs from Beirut over to Israel. He thought that was a fine idea. And Israel said, uh, no, <laughs> and came over and civil war began. And I was right in the middle of it. That was actually, um, before that, I was running guns up the mountain to the militia up. <laughs> All right, we're just going to stop this. And you and I, you're going you're to come to Minneapolis and we're just going to hang out. Because <laughs> you, you can't just throw that in with three minutes to go in a podcast. Oh, that time, you remember that time I was running guns up the mountain. You're killing me, Julia. You're killing me. Maybe we have to do part two of the podcast. I I, I guess. I think if you want us to bring her back, because I certainly need need to hear more about and finish. There is a lot more, Dave, actually, if you want to do part two. And I can assure you, my darling, it will not be boring. And it will be helpful to your listeners, who by now are probably dizzy, reaching for the scotch. <laughs> I love it. Yes. I, yes. I got nothing, man. You gotta take over. No, this is wonderful. So to, to kinda to kinda bring it home and as we go through, I think Julia, you you've got an absolutely fascinating story. And the the my favorite part for our audience for sure is that you've taken everything that you've done and that you've learned and that you've you've experienced and you've captured that into a message that goes in large part in order to move forward in your life you have to look out for yourself and as we look at this and as we are you know business owners or managers you need to look out for the common signs of compassion fatigue Yes, And you need to make sure that, you know, people are burning out and it doesn't take a whole lot. It just takes a little bit of compassion and just thinking about yourself and about others in order to break that cycle. Yes. Thinking about others, being just aware of, of how another person might be feeling. You know, mm -hmm. if somebody says something to you and you take offense at it, well, hang on a minute. Maybe they're not having a good day. Maybe something really awful is going on at home. I right. mean, try and get out of your own, oh, well, I'm offended. Try mm -hmm. and think what's happening, you know, with them. And right. we don't do that. This is not the trait of today to think about others. Yes. It's a me, 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 and myself. And I, I think that's exactly where it needs, where, where it is. And if you 
are careful in protecting yourself while extending your hand to others. Yes. And in understanding that and realizing that we're in a complicated world. Yes. And so anything that we can do to help each other out yes. is going to help you and your business. Well said. And yes. if you do it right, you might have some fascinating stories to share. Yeah. You might actually be happy for God's sake. Yeah. But I do think you might like the gun running up the Lebanese mountain store. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have you back for part two and we'll, we'll start with gun running and uh, Lebanese gun running. Um, <laughs> I, I, one last question, uh, Juliet, uh, with all that's happened to you and your extraordinary life, what, are, what is next for you? Oh, um, well, right now I, I ride horses. I'm competing on, uh, in competition on horses. Um, my next thing is if I can get, if I can get this book into a wonderful streaming series that everybody can watch and enjoy and somebody fabulous play me in it. <laughs> um, book two is, is the next thing on the horizon. And, um, you'll like that too. In Between the Magic, it's available on Amazon. Uh, if somebody's looking for you, Juliet, uh, where, where can they find you online? Uh, they can find me. My website is Juliet Watt. Uh, that's J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-W-A-T-T, one word, dot com. Um, my TEDx, just put my name into the search, Google search, TEDx Juliet Watt, and that'll come up. Um, but everything is on my website. Um, I do coaching for people with compassion fatigue and other troubles and um, delighted to help as many as I can. And I have helped quite a few to which I'm extremely proud of. And that's, and you know, Facebook and all that business, but, but um, I love it. (laughs) Sorry. That's marvelous. Yes. My, my, my opinion of social media is not very great. (laughs) Thank you. Juliet Watt, the, the most interesting woman in the world.